Among the revelations of incarnation in our season of Epiphany is the affirmation that each one of us is a beloved child of God. Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Send your spirit, holy God, tear open the veil of heaven and speak to us as beloved children so that we may hear the good news of your word made flesh. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The prophet announces that God's righteousness and justice will be embodied by one who will not grow faint in praise of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 9. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord, and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, Who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him? and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored inside of the Lord, and my God has become my strength, he says. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers, Kings shall see and stand up, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. On a day of salvation I have helped you. I have kept you and given you as a covenant to the people, to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the ways, on all the bare heights shall be their pasture. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Many years ago now, when my kids were still in school here in the city, I attended a softball game in which my daughter was playing second base. I'm thinking she must have been in the sixth grade or so. There were only a few parents in attendance standing off first base. 
One father in particular from the opposing team stood out because of his jerky agitation walking up and down the baseline. His daughter was playing second base as well, and he shouted regular instructions to her. At one point, the play came to her, and she flubbed the out, which prompted her father to scream out, My God, you are such an idiot player! That should be your name, idiot player! The game came to an end quickly then, but not before the coach went over and had a little chat with Dad, who clearly would have none of it, and told the coach where she could get off. Several things impressed me about this little exchange. One, that Dad was there at all. And two, that if he took the time to come, why did he spend it in such a hateful manner? Intriguing and troubling. Later, as the girls were leaving, I heard one of her teammates call out, idiot player who lost the game. I wondered if the name would stick. At that time, I remember thinking I had just witnessed something important, not to be missed or forgotten, and not that it was so very large. I had certainly witnessed worse, grosser behavior, but I guess I was ready for the lesson at that moment because it was as though a window opened on a universal human tragedy, and it has stayed with me all these many years later. Intuitively, you know about this tragedy. You know how people are often trained from the time they're powerless little persons to doubt their essential worth, and how in turn their own fragile egos and insecurities lead them to prop themselves up by putting others down in myriad ways, from the exquisitely subtle to the blatantly abusive. Who could deny this is one of the fundamental human flaws? Who among us would deny their own culpability? We often participate in this universal conspiracy unwittingly, foolishly, without so much as a nanosecond of reflection. It's part of the source of the struggle between races and classes and religions and between women and men and any of the people we wind up defining as the dreaded other. We could always find ourselves better than them. These tendencies are so, so ingrained we're often unconscious of our own complicity in the tragedy. And when it's brought to our attention, we tend to see it as a problem for psychologists and sociologists and educators to sort out for us, to look at the tragedy through the lens of the social scientists so that they might then engineer certain cures. We develop elaborate methodologies around self-esteem, for instance, now, I don't doubt for an instant that social scientists shed light on this and offer palliatives. But this is a much larger problem than their tools can fix by themselves. That's because, at its heart, this is a spiritual disease. This problem is a spiritual disease. In the Gospel lesson, we heard a story with a different outcome. If you were paying attention, you recognize it was also a story about a certain parent and child, in this case, a father and son. Now, granted, it's a bit difficult to 
pull out the literal details of the story, but the important lesson is there for those with open minds and hearts. We're told that a man named John was baptizing people at the Jordan River, and while he's doing his thing at the river, Jesus comes to be baptized. And afterwards, the story paints that lovely but rather surreal picture that has captured pious, sentimental Christian artists for centuries, the descending dove embodying God's spirit. Its descent is accompanied by this essential detail, the voice of God. Do you remember what that voice says? You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Contrast that for a moment with, my God, you're such an idiot player. That should be your name, idiot player. At its heart, Christianity is absolutely unequivocal about the centrality of love. Love is the glue, the force, the grace, the life and breath of God. Life is one of love's primary outcomes. Love is the essence of life force and it has its genesis in the Creator. All love is an emanation from relationship with the Creator. Love alone has the height and length and breadth and depth to embrace suffering. It calls forth courage and integrity. The way our scriptures speak of it, love is the medium through which all things have come into being, and it defines God's very nature. So. The Father says to the Son, You are the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Relating to such a God as this leads to the inexorable conclusion that each of us is cherished beyond time and measure. And if this is true, you can see then that the Father in my little softball story was suffering a spiritual malaise. But even now, from this clinical distance, I, I don't want to pick on him. It's too easy to heap blame on an easy mark. Because the truth is, while we pay lip service to this lovely idea of love, in most of us, in our heart of hearts, we secretly don't quite believe it. We can't quite believe that we are that valuable in the grand scheme of things. In fact, our more routine, earthbound associations lead us to believe just the opposite, that our true worth is suspect. There's a very good chance that even the most successful among us may be driven by the secret conviction that no amount of success will in the end prove our true worth. And most likely this truth lurks in the gray haze of the unconscious because we don't want to face it. We keep our suspicions locked down, as it were, where we believe they stay safe, yet they can't help breaking out from time to time, like on the ball field with our daughter, for instance. Do you see why this transcends psychology? Our problem lies in our core, in our soul, with our understanding of the essential organization of the universe and our place within it. This is one of the reasons we have the sacramental act of baptism. In a few moments, if we're wide awake, we'll understand how far and how deep it actually intends to reach. 
If we pay attention, we'll be reminded of what the deepest truth is, namely that every last one of us has a sacred genealogy that reaches all the way to God. As the baptismal reaffirmation happens, those listening very carefully as a drop of water touches their faces just might hear a voice that says, you are my daughter, you are my son, you are my child whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And if that seeps into their souls, then starting from the inside out, they'll find themselves changing, literally becoming what all of us are in our essential nature. Joining our hearts with theirs, we become increasingly conscious. More and more, we'll discover how we have capitulated to the power of fear and attempted to prove our worth either by our own striving or by propping ourselves up by putting others down. We'll become increasingly dissatisfied with that way of life that no longer matches what we know to be true. We'll find our old patterns unacceptable. We'll find the patterns of fear in our culture unacceptable. We'll find ourselves caring more about how well we receive those who've been rejected. We'll be thinking less about ourselves and more about others. Right in the central act of initiation of our faith journey, is a revelation of the complete truth. That we feel unworthy is understandable. In the presence of such love, a humble sense of our unworthiness is a completely natural response. Most important, though, is the full realization that God loves us with an everlasting love that inflated our lungs at the first, set our lives in motion, and brought us to this very moment when you're hearing these very words about your sacred worth and the sacred worth of everyone else who shares our space, shares our city, shares our world. I tell you, there is not a grander or more important thing going on anywhere around town at this moment than you're hearing either for the first time or the hundredth time, the deep truth at the core of all things. You are my beloved. <laughs>